Amen. Let's come and let's adore him, and I invite you to do so by opening up your Bibles. Let's open them up to the book of Isaiah that is in the Old Testament. Um, If you're a little unfamiliar where the prophets are, kind of open up the middle of your Bible, you'll see Psalms, Proverbs, um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and and then you'll get to Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. And as you have heard through the welcome and, and other parts of the service, this morning marks the first Sunday of Advent. And you might be saying, I've never heard that term, or I don't know what that means. What is this Advent that you speak of? Well, Advent simply means coming or arrival. And so during this Christmas or Advent season, we celebrate simply the arrival of our King. And in setting our thoughts, particularly on Christ our King, we we do so by looking back to His first coming, looking back to His birth, looking back to the events leading up to the the virgin conception. And as the wise men come and they, they bring their gifts to the child who was born in a manger. But we don't just focus on the past just to reminisce and think about the sweet, cuddly child, but we do so anticipating that he will come again. We, like Israel of old, who look back to God's great redemption through the the events of the exodus out of Egypt, they too, as they wandered in the desert and even as the establishment of Israel took place, they looked forward to the day when, when God would break in in a magical and, and mighty way, just like in the Exodus, when a king would come, a king of David would come and deliver them from all their oppressors. Through Christ, we have been redeemed. But now we wander through this wilderness of the world, awaiting His return. In fact, this is what we sang when we sang, O come, He come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Therefore, as Israel, awaiting the coming of Emmanuel, so we await his second coming. And in order to draw our hearts toward this great hope, we're going to spend uh, the next five Sundays in the book of Isaiah. And we've entitled this series, as you can see on the screens, As It Is Written, Isaiah Tells of a King. And typically at Christmas, what do we do? We go to the New Testament, and we, we might camp out in Luke and and look at these narratives of of Jesus' birth, the stories of Mary and Joseph, and and, and what we'll do is then we'll reference or quote those Old Testament scriptures that kind of are interspersed in those passages. Well, this year we wanted to flip it around. We want to do the inverse. We want to go to the Old Testament, go to these texts themselves, and, and then kind of sprinkle in some of the New Testament, see how these things came about and see how they fulfilled. And so we come here to the book of Isaiah where at this time Israel is on the cusp of great trouble and tragedy. See the surrounding nations are taunting her. 
And they're threatening to overtake her. And Isaiah the prophet is commissioned to call Israel to return to the Lord. Israel had become like the nations around her, had fallen into great idolatry and wickedness, had forsaken to care for the widow and the poor among her. Israel was becoming like the pagan nations around her. And even though God in the past had been gracious to her, delivering her from the Philistines and the surrounding nations, this time God had forsaken her God, or Israel had forsaken her God and become like those around her, and God was going to come and do something about it. Therefore, Isaiah calls Israel to be prepared for the coming of her king. A king who would reign with justice, a king who would make her sins, though as scarlet, they had soaken in her garments so much so like blood stains. But yet this king would come and make Israel white as snow. And so you could summarize the book of Isaiah this way, which we think over the next five Sundays. The king is coming, and his people must anticipate his reign. The king is coming, and we, Oak Park, must anticipate his reign. And so this morning, we're going to get in a, a, a vision of this king so that we too like israel we can heed the message to anticipate the coming of our king and what we're going to find out is that this king is a holy king he is a righteous king and in doing so as we see this vision of a holy king we're going to learn how we should anticipate his coming this christmas season so first of all if we're going to anticipate his coming we must behold the holy king. If you're, if you're there, I hope you are. Let's read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. 
And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We're going to anticipate the coming of the Holy King. We must behold the Holy King. For Isaiah, it was the year in which King Uzziah died. And just a little background on King Uzziah. Uzziah began his reign over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Get this, when he was 16 years old. You thought you had a young leader. He was 16, and not only that, but he reigned over Israel for 52 years. We think eight-year terms of presidents is a long time. 52 years. That could be really good. That could be really bad, depending on who's in power, right? The good thing for Israel is that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, Judah had not seen a king like Uzziah since the days of David and Solomon. He was a wonderful and mighty king, and under his leadership, Judah had expanded its territory, had defeated the Philistines and the surrounding nations. And the scripture says this about him in 2 Chronicles. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, that's a prophet, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. King Uzziah was a mighty king. And even though towards the end of his reign, if you know the story well, he he was also a fallen king. Towards the end of his reign, he pridefully entered the temple and offered burnt incense upon the altar. And that, by the way, was a role not for the king, but for the priest. And God judged him by striking him with leprosy. Nevertheless, he was still remembered for his great legacy and overall reign as a great king. But though Uzziah was a great man, he was still a man. This is the saying goes, the best of men are just men at best. And about 740 B.C., he died, like all kings He died, and Israel no doubt was concerned as to what the future would hold. I mean, a king had reigned for half a century. It was a good king. And not only that, they knew and they were beginning to hear of this other nation who was rising up Assyria and was gobbling up like a beast the surrounding nations and taking them over and was lurking near. Who was going to rescue Israel? However, the hope of Israel is made known here to Isaiah. Probably entering in the temple, maybe in the morning, to offer worship to the Lord. Isaiah would enter this temple and he would come out never to be the same again. We see here in verse 1 what happened when Isaiah entered the temple. He says, I saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. That word Lord right there is is translated Adonai. In your Bibles, you might notice that it's capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. 
It's a little bit different than, say, the Lord in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, which is in all caps. That's signifying these are two different words translated in English the same way. The one in verse 1 is Adonai. In verse 3, it's Yahweh. Adonai is not the name of the Lord, it's his title. And that word means sovereign or master. Therefore, this, this vision here is a vision of the sovereign one, the king of Israel. And what did Isaiah see? He, he describes this vision in various ways. First, he saw that the sovereign was seated upon a throne, a throne that is high and it was exalted. And this is contrasted, this high throne that is lifted up is contrasted to the thrones of the kingdoms of this world, where kings set themselves up and declare themselves to be high and lifted up. This shed light on, on what Isaiah says in chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. How is the Lord going to bring low all the kingdoms of the earth? Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, whose throne is high and exalted and above any other. This is further why this is juxtaposed to the vision or to the, the declaration that, that this was the year in which King Uzziah had died. This is because Isaiah and Israel need to know that their hope has never been in human kings. Even the best of kings die. But there is one who sits upon the throne, and his throne is not rivaled by any other. This is the king who is high and lifted up that Isaiah sees. Not only that does he see a throne that is magnificent and mighty, but all he can see is the train of, of his robe. Notice he says he saw the Lord, but we never get a description of what he looks like. We don't get a, a description, well, he was tall and handsome and he had long flowing hair like many of the Jesus pictures you, know, you see. You don't get that. No, this throne is so high that Isaiah is looking up and all he can see is the trim of his robe. And all he can notice is that it drapes over the throne and it fills the entire temple. In the ancient Near East, a king's robe would signify his great power. A king would have his robe and the train of his robe very long. Well, here, the Lord's train of his robe fills the entire temple. It consumes it. And the temple symbolized the place of God's presence on earth, and, on earth, and so it is obvious that this king is the almighty upon the earth. No one rivals his power. No one's robe even comes close. Third, Isaiah saw two angelic beings, and they're called seraphim, and, and that, that literally could be translated burning ones, like little lights flickering, if you want to picture something here. And significantly here, fire is often associated with the holiness of God. Just think of, of Moses at the burning bush. The fire that burned the bush but did not consume it. Or the pillar of fire that led Israel in the wilderness. 
like Moses, who would come down from the mountain, having seen just the glimpse of God's glory, he would come down and what, what would be on his face? It would be radiating like fire. So these angelic beings who were created to stand in God's presence day in and day out, they are burning ones. They are reflecting the glory and the holiness of God whom they stand in his presence. However, notice here, they have six sets or three sets of wings they have six wings three sets two of which they use to cover their face why do they have to cover their face because the creature cannot look upon the creator you cannot look upon him and stare at him with your eyes and live we're told not to stare at the sun right we can barely do it you cannot stare at the glory shining from God and live. Like Paul, who on the road to Damascus met Christ, and it said, the light shined brighter than the noonday sun. If you cannot stare at the sun, how do you think you will stand before the presence of God? The other two wings, they covered their feet. And I must admit, this is rather odd. Um, commentators, scholars have debated, whoa, why, do, why is this occurring? Some have speculated that, that maybe this is to um, detail that these are faithful angels who, unlike the other angels who were fallen, they do not go on their own way. They do not walk their own path. They cover their feet, possibly. At the very least, it seems that they're referring to covering their creatureliness. For the perfect, uncreated, holy God. That things created cannot stand as they are in his presence without some shielding. I like what R.C. Sproul says about this verse. God's glory is so intense that even the angels need to be equipped to shield their eyes from the blinding, blazing glory of his presence. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is our king. And what's most important, though, is not these sets of wings, by the way. What's most important is what they do as they fly. As they hover above the throne. Look at verse 3. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy. And it's as if they're, they're set on both sides and they're crying, Holy. And the other one goes, Holy. And the other one goes, Holy. And it's resounding in the temple. In order to highlight emphasis, in the Hebrew Scriptures, words would be repeated. What do we do? We, we use emojis, right? We, we text with emojis. I, I noticed when I, I sent some text out uh, to, to family members, Happy Thanksgiving, it already put a dinner plate emoji right there, or a turkey We've moved beyond triple explanation points. They didn't have emojis back then. So they would repeat words. Jesus would do this as he would teach, truly, truly, I say to you. Meaning, what I'm about to say, you need to listen up to. But I want you to notice these angels, they don't just repeat a word twice. No, they repeat it three times. And this is the only only occasion 
that a word in Scripture is used three times, and it's when it speaks of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He's not just holy. He's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Holiness, then, is God's supreme attribute and characteristic. Above any other attribute of God, we must think of Him as holy. And His holiness is otherworldly. We can't really get our minds around this. That's why Isaiah gives us descriptions, but yet it's veiled, isn't it? We can only get a veiled glimpse at the holiness of God, but we know that this is mighty, this is splendid. It's beyond our comprehension. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means for Him to be set apart, but maybe a better idea is to be devoted. Wholly devoted to something. And what is God set apart and devoted to? Well, the angels say it. The whole earth is full of His glory. You want to know what God cares most about? It's His glory. It's the spread of the fame of His name. As the prophets would long for, they too wanted the glory of God to fill the earth, to cover the earth as water covers the sea. You've ever gone to the sea? All you see is water. That's what God wants when we look at this world. All we see is His glory. In a real sense, we do, don't we? His glory, as the angels say, does fill the earth. But here's what Isaiah must learn and what he must bring to Israel and what we must bring to the world. Is that you are, that, that men have blinded themselves, that intentionally put blockers on so that they will not see his glory. Why? Because what Jesus says, men hate the light. Why? And they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. They're evil. Notice as the angels proclaim in verse 4 the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Not only are they resounding back and forth like stereo, the best Bose system on the planet, the heavenly Bose system it looks like, the sound of their declaration resounds with the weighty glory and majesty of God and it shakes the foundations of the temple. Have you ever been asleep at night and be wakened to the sound of thunder crashing outside your window? And oftentimes what happens, there's a boom, and it rattles your house. You ever had that happen to you? You wake up and your heart's racing. What just happened? Well, this didn't just happen once. This is happening. Boom, 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 boom. Like a thunderstorm. This is the holiness of God. It's frightening, isn't it? There's a sense of awe but terror at the same time. And every time you hear the lightning or you see the lightning and hear the thunder, we get a glimpse of the mighty power of God. And that's what he likens it to, the foundation shaking like thunder. And he goes on and he says, And the house was filled with smoke. 
I don't know what the smoke's coming from. Maybe the, the incense, maybe it's the, the smoke of, of the fire of his glory. The lichen scenario happens at, in the Exodus when Israel's at the foot of Sinai. And what is going on? The mountain is covered in smoke representing the presence of God and the mountain shook. And you know what Israel said? Hide us from this one. Hide us. Just as Moses and Israel were only given a glimpse of the Lord, so Isaiah sees only the hem of his robe surrounded in smoke. Nevertheless, it was enough for him to behold the holiness of the king. Brothers and sisters, we behold his glory and his holiness as we encounter him in the scriptures. We're given a, a, a recounting of what Isaiah saw. And so we too must behold his holiness. This leads us to the second way we must anticipate his coming, and that is we must not just behold his holiness, we must bow before the holy king. Isaiah's response is rather chilling. It's like those, all those who have encountered God's glory. Notice what he says in verse 5. Woe is me. Notice he, he doesn't leap for joy. He doesn't scream like he's at a ball game. He doesn't dance around. On the other extreme, he's certainly not bored. No, he pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me. Cursed is me. It's as if he realized, I've walked into the wrong room. Like in one of those movies where, where someone walks in the wrong room and then they overhear a deal that they shouldn't hear and they know, uh-oh, they know, and I'm not going to leave here alive. That's what Isaiah is speaking of. Oh, no. I was, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not equipped. And so he comes to the right conclusion. Woe is me. He says, I am lost. And this isn't the sense of, oh, I'm lost, I'm in the wrong room. No, it's, it's better the idea of undone. I'm ruined. I'm a wreck. He is completely undone. And see, brothers and sisters, when we come to truly understand who God is, it is at that exact moment, like Isaiah, that we will truly come to understand who we are. When the bright, shining holiness of God is shined before us, when we encounter him and we see him in his holy word, oh, we too, we say, woe is me. And Isaiah knows that if this is the king who's coming, he and his people are doomed. Why? Well, he says it because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knows that his mouth reflects his heart. Did you know that? that's what Jesus says? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We know who we are when we speak. And now his eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. The, that, that phrase there means he's the Lord of the angelic army. That's what that means. Who are, num who are countless. They are upon myriads of myriads, 10,000 by 10,000. And he's the Lord. He's the king. He's the sovereign of them all. 
And he knows that no one who sees the Lord lives. But it is this humility expressed through his confession of sin that leads to mercy. This is the picture of what the Lord means when he says, I oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. This is what it looks like. Woe is me. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner through and through. And because Isaiah responds in this posture of humility, of undoneness, God covers his guilt. Look in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim, the, the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Burning coal that came from the altar of sacrifice signifying that there had been a substitute, a sacrifice given for Isaiah. This symbolized it being applied on his behalf. Or it may have been from the altar of incense, which even in the, in the law would signify atonement and reflect it. Either way, God's holiness ruins us, but also brings great comfort. It's two sides of that coin. God's holiness ruins us, puts an end to us. Just as we, we read, what is he going to do? He's going to humble all those who are high and lifted up and bring them low. Why? Because he's the king. You and I aren't. That's why we should be humble people. That same holiness comforts those who bow before him. That same holiness that, that judges through fire will also purify the humble. So God's hot and holy uh, justice purifies and cleanses. Isaiah then serves an example for how Israel must prepare for her coming king. That's what's going on here. Look in chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Look at what the Lord is going to do when he comes. It's one chapter back in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. When the Lord comes, what is going to happen? Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Who is this king who is coming? He is a holy king who's coming. And as C.S. Lewis aptly states, die before you die, for there is no chance thereafter. Have you humbled yourself before the king, or are you high and lifted up? Because the only chance that you and I have when the king comes is if we have bowed now. If, if we have, like Isaiah said, woe is me. I am a filthy individual. My heart is dead in and of itself before you. I do not, I cannot stand. If the angels must shield themselves, how will I stand on that day? Brothers and sisters, those gathered here this morning, we must die to ourselves now. For when the Holy King comes, those who have not anticipated his reign by turning to him will be consumed by his holy wrath. Therefore, having beheld the Holy King, we are to bow before him. 
we're also then, this will lead us to serve him, right? We want to serve the Holy King. After this terrifying yet gracious encounter, Isaiah hears the Lord say in verse 8, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. That's kind of a change of demeanor, don't you think? I'm undone. I'm over. I'm going to die. But now his sin's covered. You're welcome. I will go on behalf of the king. I will go. This one whom Israel must fear, whom the world may fear, but if you come to him and bow, he is gracious, he is kind. We're going to see at the end of this series, oh, he is the comforting one. He is the one who brings comfort to the world. It is only to those who receive his comfort, who bow before him. So what is Isaiah going to be sent to do? He's going to be sent, he's going to be commissioned to announce that Israel must be ready for their king's rule. That the king is coming, get ready. Think of John the Baptist. As the king is coming, he's preparing the way. He, like Isaiah, is being faithful. And what does he say? Already the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. And he looks at those Pharisees and he says, who warned you of the judgment to come? And as Israel's coming, what are they doing? Why are they being baptized? It's a baptism of repentance, of turning, of confessing their sins, preparing for the coming of the king. Like Isaiah, we too are motivated to serve the holy king and telling people to get ready, aren't we? Why? Because like Isaiah, we have met the king who has ruined us. In some way or another, whether it was you or a young child brought up in your home, you came to that realization, even at a childlike sense. And probably as you grew up older and older, you became more and more aware of your own depravity and guilt. But yet in that depravity and looking lower to yourself, he looks much more highly and exalted and precious and good to you. Maybe you're like me and in, 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 in your teenage years, in college, you met the Savior. And you knew the way you were living, woe is me. Or maybe it was later in your life and you had lived a life for yourself, but you one day, whether it was through a messenger or a sermon or you opened up the scriptures you heard and you were undone and then you were cleansed and now you serve the Lord. It is out of our gratitude and jealousy for the Lord that we're motivated to call others to meet him. I want you to look at this message, though. I've already read it, but I'm going to draw our attention to it just a little more. Look in verse 9. This is what the Lord tells Isaiah. Okay, you're going to go. Here's what I want you to say. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? That's not encouraging. <laughs> that, that is a message of judgment. It's a message which hardens their 
their hearts, it blinds their eyes, that muffles their ears. And Isaiah is distressed. Look in verse 10. He says, how long, Lord, how, how long do I need to tell them about that? The Lord goes on, he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And, and though, even if a tenth of the people remain, it will be burned again. And like a terebinth, that's a tree, and an oak tree, whose stump remains, it's going to be chopped down. That's what John the Baptist is referring to. Judgment's coming. Have you repented? And what happens when Jesus preaches? Oh, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Oh, these people have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Well did Isaiah speak of you. And what did they do? They hardened their hearts. They blinded their eyes. They stuffed their ears. Literally, after, they, after Jesus raised Lazarus and the people are going crazy, it says they plugged their ears and they screamed. <laughs> they rejected. They would not bow down as the message comes. What is Isaiah to do? He's to declare the true condition of Israel and extent of God's judgment for her wicked state. But I want you to think of it this way. What was Jonah commissioned to do when he went to Nineveh? God is going to destroy the city. But what did that message of the coming judgment to come do that Jonah did not want to declare? They repented in sackcloth and ashes. That same message was meant to lead Israel to repentance and confess their sins. The same sun that melts the wax will harden the clay, though. That same message will harden some, but only a few it will melt them. Because most people, when they look at the child born in a manger, they say, I'm not worshiping that. It's cute. I'll sing the songs. I'll celebrate Christmas. I'll do all that. But that's nothing that I need to give my life to. Because it looks foolish. And Paul says it pleased God through the foolishness of the message to save those who will believe. Why? So that he would bring the proud low. Oh, you think you're proud? Go ahead, do it your way. You think you're in high and lofty position? Do it your way. You'll be chopped down like the tree. But those who look weak, those who humble themselves before this king, well, they will be brought into the throne room and they will reign. While this message looks grim, there's literally a seed of hope, though. It's a comment, that last part of verse 13. It's a comment as to what the stump is. Israel's like a tree that's chopped down, and there's a stump. I've got one of those in my yard. It's a stump, and I want to get it out. Why? Because things grow out of it, right? And it messes my lawnmower up, too. But the Lord says, what's the stump? It's the holy seed. Holy offspring. It's the remnant. It's those who believed, who, like Isaiah, humbled themselves. Judgment is coming, and this is how God works. His salvation comes through judgment. It's a fire that burns out the impurities, but it refines those who believe. These are the few who humble themselves before the king. So who is this king? 
Who is this king of glory? You know. I don't have to tell you. It's Jesus, right? How do we know it's Jesus? Because, as the New Testament says, as it is written. And they speak of these passages. Particularly in John 12, 41, you don't need to turn there. But John, reflecting on why the people reject Jesus, said, well, did Isaiah write? In Isaiah, he says, saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. He's referring to this passage. Who is this baby? He's the holy king of Israel. He's the righteous one who's coming. And so this Advent season, we are like Isaiah to behold the holy king. And bow before him and serve him. And while we anticipate his coming, we are to go out and warn the world. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is king. And we are to warn the world that this baby who is precious as a lamb, he is coming again as a conquering lion. And yet that message will harden many. But for those who will humble themselves before the king, it will bring great comfort and hope. Just as the burning coal came and represented Isaiah's sins being atoned for, we're going to come before a symbol this morning of the Lord's Supper where we're going to partake. And it's not that these elements are the cleansing component, but they represent the atonement, the sacrifice that was made. And in just a moment, Jim McAllister is going to come and, and lead us. And as we take of the Lord's Supper, if, if you're not a Christian, this table is not for you. But it is our prayer that one day it will be. That maybe this morning you beheld the King for the first time. You saw this Jesus in light that you had never seen Him. And I pray that like Isaiah, you will confess your sins before Him and find great mercy. As we are just a bunch of ruined sinners here. Men and women who are broken, who in and of ourselves can bring nothing to the table, but yet we have found mercy in the King. Let us remember that as we will take the Lord's Supper. Let me pray, and Jim, you can come up.